Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Never the Same. It's a podcast where we talk about navigating uncertainty and the events that changed us. I'm your host, Jordan Chu. Thanks for joining me as we navigate this beautiful but uncertain world together. I think one friend actually said this to me one time, and, I, and I, it was the most relief I'd ever felt. And they said something like, you know, I know this is like a really dark, a really dark part. And I don't know how, I don't know how we get into the light, but I believe that we'll get there. And I'm just going to sit with you until we do. And that was it. It was like, oh, I don't, it was just a, like, I just felt like, oh, I don't have to change. I don't have to be better. I already feel like I'm the worst person in the world. So to know that you are not trying to make me different, that you're not trying to make me better, um, that you're not trying to push away what I'm feeling and that you're just going to sit with me. Like that was the greatest comfort of all. Today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Rachel Havacost. Rachel is an author, a storyteller, and a coach who's been on my radar for a long time for her ability to balance sharing some of the really raw and sensitive episodes from her life alongside the tools and techniques she's used to move through them. She does this in a way that feels grounded, hopeful, and oftentimes quite beautiful. Rachel recently published a memoir called Where the River Flows, in which she writes with her trademark honesty and a real human touch about her battles with her eating disorder, depression, anxiety, suicidality, sexual trauma, divorce, and grief. She and I had so much to dive into that I totally forgot until the end that she's actually one of the only other people I know who's done the Pan American Highway trip down to Argentina. And as it did for me, it played a pivotal role in her life, but we'll have to save that story for another episode. Some of the topics we went deep on included learning to sit in the not knowing and finding joy in letting go, the power of sharing, how speaking out creates a space for others to open up, learning to love the darkest part of yourself, how asking for help is a learnable skill, why sometimes it's important to do away with your rituals and just live without always needing to heal, and prioritizing our social health just as much as our mental and physical health. The time Rachel has spent reflecting on and writing about her experiences clearly shows in her ability to tackle these thorny subjects with deep insight and a lot of grace. I really enjoyed this conversation and I think you will too. Love it. Let's go. Cool. <laughs> um, awesome. So I, I I read your book. It was what a what a journey. Um, a, you're you're such a beautiful writer, and you are able to to tackle subjects that have a lot of nuance, a lot of depth, a lot of pain, a lot of beauty, and um, kind of come to them in a in a way that like. I really felt like the whole time I was I was right there with you. You you made me <laughs> fall in love. You you made me feel all the things. So um, that's not that's not a question. Just thank you for that. That was that was a really beautiful opportunity to to dive in with you. So I feel like I know you a little bit better now. But um, yeah, I, because this is kind of about navigating uncertainty. Um, I, I kind of wanted to start there. You know, you talk a lot about the not knowingness. And, and I love that phrase. I don't know if that's something that you coined, but I definitely am going to adopt. Um, but you talk about not knowing, you know, living in the gray, the uncertainty, both in like knowing yourself, um, in your relationships, both, you know, everything from your relationship to food, to your relationship with um, Josh and, and other partners, um, to grief, uh, to make a major life decisions. So I guess one of my first questions is, you know, 
what has helped you navigate those times and, and how has the way that you've navigated those periods of not knowingness changed over the years? Hmm. I'm like already feeling emotional just like thinking about this because I, I, I spent so many years of my life trying to control the things I didn't know because it was so uncomfortable to not know. Um, and so like, I just, you know, first off know that the, I've t- completely adapted the way I sit in uncertainty and to be able to kind of be at this point in my life and reflect on the ways I used to cope with uncertainty. And now the way I, uh, find comfort in it is like, it's really, it's, it's cool to be able to see that, that shift because for a long, long time, I really wasn't sure if I would ever experience any relief, um, mm-hmm from the anxiety of not knowing. And I think, you know, growing up, um, I grew up in a house where like my parents didn't talk about anything. Like we didn't talk about our feelings, our thoughts. Like it was very much like, how was, how was school? How are your grades? Where are you going? When are you going to be home? Um, and so I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't learn, um, how to, uh, I didn't learn how to talk about my inner world. I didn't learn how to ask questions. I didn't learn, um, I didn't learn how to navigate the parts of my life where there weren't answers because everything was so clinical and and like scheduled and structured that I just thought, okay, the way that life is supposed to go is I follow these steps and I, and then everything will be okay. And, uh, as a teenager, like there's a lot of uncertainty navigating new social situations, puberty, dating, sex, like there's, you know, there's just a lot of like, um, of that kind of in between space where there's play and experimentation. And that breeds a lot of anxiety and uncertainty around how am I being perceived by my peers? Like, what am I going to do with my life? Everyone's asking me what I'm going to do in college. And like, that's, I think like when I first really experienced that sensation of not knowing and the way I managed that was, with my eating disorder, um, because I could heavily control what was going in and out of my body, how much my body was moving. I could, I could see changes in what I, in my body based on like what I was or wasn't eating. And that felt, that felt like something I could cling to when a lot of other things felt unclingable. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, like it would adapt into things like just setting really lofty goals for myself. Like I was, uh, I was an overachiever. I was hyperproductive. Um, I wanted to do the best in school. I had a plan for my, I was going to be a famous actress. My plan was to go to school in New York and study theater and then go to LA and be the next Meryl Streep. And I was like, if I follow that plan, then everything is okay. And, um, and, and life just doesn't really work that way. And I think over the years, like, um, the more, like, you know, the more I lived, the more experiences I had, the more, more things happened in my life that I had absolutely no control over. Like I had a friend die when I was 19 and that was out of my control. And, um, I had, you know, some experiences like some sexual trauma in college and that was a completely out of control experience. And, um, and again, like, I just didn't know, I didn't know how to navigate, um, experiences where I, there wasn't a roadmap, there wasn't a, a structure or a blueprint. And I really flailed. Like I just, I turned inward a lot. Um, I thought I had to figure things out by myself. I, uh, 
I didn't feel safe to fall apart. I didn't have safe spaces to fall apart. I didn't have people I could call for support. I didn't even know how to do that. Like, I just didn't know that that was okay to do. Um, and so I think like, you know, over the years, like I, after I started going to therapy, I learned more, I learned more about like, uh, just concepts like radical acceptance, um, you know, shifting my mindset from black and white or all or nothing thinking and kind of allowing myself to see things as um, not either or, but both and, or things like having overlap, things in the gray area. So the more I kind of like learned some of these like more therapeutic psychological skills, I was able to like kind of change my thought process around day-to-day things. Um, But I still like had this longing to like harness this energy of like the world around me in order to feel like I had some sense of like, I know where life is going. And the, in times in my life, the harder I've gripped, the harder life becomes. Um, and every time I kind of get to like a breaking point in my life, it's because I've been trying to micromanage everything around me from my relationships to my relationship with myself, to my relationship with food, um, to my career, um, you know, whatever it is, I'm, I'm holding on so tightly and that things suffocate and then they, and then they don't live. And, uh, and in those moments I've had to like really, really, uh, do a lot of surrender and let go. And the more that happens, the more I kind of have come into that, get, like gotten to that breaking point where I have to like completely let go, the more that there's a reinforcement of, oh yeah, I don't have any fucking control over anything. Life is going to keep happening. Um, I can do my best to like prepare and have the skills to navigate things and it's going to keep happening. And the heart, like the more I let go, the easier it is. Um, and so just like with each iteration of that reinforcement, I've, I've found more comfort in, um, the space and times when I just have no fucking idea what's going on in my life. And like right now there's a lot of uncertainty in my life and I've never been happier. Like, Hmm. And a, and a lot of that is because I've reduced my attachment to things. I've, I've stopped trying to make meaning of, of everything around me or attach meaning to everything. I'm super focused on the present moment. So I'm not hyper fixated on things that have already happened or what might or might not happen in the future. Um, and I, you know, I'm kind of allowing life to happen around me and I'm moving with it rather than trying to fight it or force it. And, uh, and it's just like, I mean, I think I was talking to my therapist about this yesterday. It was like, I haven't had a depressive episode in, I think like three months. And that's a, that's a long time for me not to experience any depression um, or anxiety. And, and it's not because like my life is going super well, like (laughs) a lot of like financial scarcity and like, um, and I don't really know like what I'm going to do with my career. Like, uh, my, my house is a mess all the time. <laughs> like I'm not a good cook. I mean, there's just like, whatever, you know, but like, but I'm, but I feel well, I feel stable. And like, uh, and so, so much of that relief comes from letting go and, and knowing that like, I just can't, I can't control, I can't control life at all. Um, so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you said that you you find joy in that now and i think that's such an interesting mindset shift too and it's obviously a big jump to go from feeling like the fear and the scarcity and the um you know the the lack of control and the wanting to grip you know really hard 
Um, what do you think it is that's kind of allowed you to find the joy? Because there's one thing to just be okay with it. And there's another thing to be like, wow, I'm actually, I'm enjoying this place that I'm in. Yeah. I, so I also have found that in times when I'm able to really get into a place of letting go or surrender, I'm usually reminded of like an existential lens for looking at the world, which in a lot of ways is pretty nihilistic. It's like the only, the only real thing that we, that we know is certain is death. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that, you know, initially when I like read a lot about existentialism, um, like specifically like in terms of, uh, like therapeutic existentialism, I was kind of like, what, what the fuck? Like, (laughs) we're supposed to just like embrace, like everything is just death anxiety. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And like, it was a very, like, it seemed like a very dark way to look at things. And, and I think initially, like there is some, uh, some darkness to, you know, that recognition of like, that's the only thing, that's the only certain thing in life is death. That's pretty dark. And like, by really sitting in that and acknowledging it, I, you know, I've got, that has kind of put me in, in, in periods of my life of deep hopelessness and feeling like, well, then what's the point? I might as well just die now because nothing is, nothing is going well in my life. So if that's the only true certain thing, like, let me make that certain today because my, the rest of my life doesn't, feel worth worth it um and and i think like finding um instead like a sense of uh liberation from that and a liberation and a freedom in oh like that's the only thing that's that's true and certain therefore i get to make everything else up Mm -hmm. i get to invent everything from now until that moment whenever it is if it's tomorrow or 30 years from now all that time in between is free time, baby. That's playtime. Like, you know? And so like by kind of, by, by shifting my mindset around it into like, Oh, how liberating that nothing else is certain, but that like, I then, I then get to be the creator of my life and not in a way where I can control it, but in a way where I get to play with being alive Mm -hmm. and I get to, I get to have experiences and, and create memories and build connections because one day I'm not going to be here anymore. And and that, that creates a lot of freedom for me in, I think we're leaving a lot of what I used to think life was about, which was success, money, uh, love, like, but more of like a sort of like achievement uh, of love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I think it's also why I'm kind of having a little bit of an existential quasi, we'll call it a quasi crisis about my career, because part of me is like, as much as I love what I do and, and, and I'm, and I care deeply about it. Um, I also like, uh, I really want to enjoy my life for the first time in like maybe 10 or 15 years. Like I really want to, like, I really want to live. And, uh, and so I want to, you know, I want to find ways to, uh, um, to have life feel really enjoyable rather than full of pressure and, um, and as, as if there is some legacy I have to leave, um, which is, you know, also kind of some, that's also a, a component of death anxiety is this idea that like, oh, well, if, if the only true thing is that I'm physically going to die, then if I leave a legacy, at least I live on, right. Yeah, like so we live on in people's memories or in history. And I definitely, someone that has been like susceptible to that. Like, I think like, oh, well, if I, if I make an impact or leave an imprint, then, then I'll have done something important and I'll, you know, live beyond my actual physical death. And, 
and kind of like having some reconciliation with that and realizing like how much of that is my ego and versus like, uh, you know, true altruism, which, you know, there's always a little bit of overlap, but I don't know. It just like brings up a lot of questions for me around how I want to live life now um, with this newfound like desire to actually live. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I kind of came to a, a similar realization, which it feels, uh, <laughs> feels silly to be coming to that. I'm 37 and just sort of be realizing it, but um, two things that you mentioned that I, I want to circle back on, but you know, it's the death realization, the death, the realization that literally the only thing that's certain is that we're all dying. I think only seems negative in a North American context. Like there are a mm. lot of other cultures and I know you've spent a lot of time in Indonesia. Like there are other cultures that embrace death as much more a part of life and, and talk about it and have rituals around it and celebrate it. And, you know, it, it's more present and not this sort of like hidden in the closet, dark taboo thing, which I think then frees you up to, have that realization earlier, just have it ingrained in you as something like, Oh, like, yeah, okay. Obviously we're all going to die. And so what we get to do here is like, you know, this brief moment that, um, kind of to your point, you can use to play and, and use to, to really focus on the things that matter, um, whatever you decide those are. But yeah, I, I had, a that realization, not, not as much with the death, but really with the, the loss, like that everything like death as a function of loss, or I guess loss as a function of death, like that everything we love will, disappear and die mm -hmm. and you know um and so it's funny that you mentioned like the letting go but like the the earlier i am able to realize that when it comes to something that i find myself grasping really tight to like like this is also temporary and no matter how much i want to control it it will also go really just frees up that space to be like well instead of like you know having this beautiful butterfly in my hand and trying to like grab onto it really tightly like you know that's gonna crush it like i can just like let it land there and, and it'll fly away at some point but at least i've like enjoyed the moment with it and uh, I, that was a huge huge reframe for me so interesting to hear somebody else kind of going through a similar one yeah yeah um you you mentioned uh you didn't mention him by name but um i assume that you were talking about lyle the friend that you lost when you were 19 Mm -hmm. that uh I, I certainly wasn't aware of in your story and that really um <laughs> that hit me um obviously as a kind of parallel to to my story losing a, a love like that in a, a traumatic way but do you feel like having that loss at such a young age like shaped the way that you look at loss and, and grief like did that how did that change the way you look at things yeah, I think, you know, like, first of all, like, I, I, had, I didn't know how to cope with grief um, at all. And I don't think any 19 year old should know. And, uh, and I also just, you know, I had no guidance on what to do with grief. Um, and so I remember feeling um, very, very much alone in my grieving process. And I remember feeling a lot of guilt. Um, there was so much guilt associated with my grief. And, um, and I think that that guilt, or I mean, I know that that guilt came from feeling like I hadn't done enough when he was alive to make sure he knew how I felt. Mm -hmm. And I, I warped it into a story where I had convinced myself that if I had, if I had actually told him that I loved him and said those words out loud, that he would still be alive, that perhaps by verbalizing my feelings towards him or letting him know how I felt, 
I could have altered the course of his life just an inch, just enough that maybe he wouldn't have been on that boat on that day. And, um, and that I, I held on to that story for a really long time and it, uh, it didn't really allow me to grieve. It just kept me in this sort of cycle of guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kept me stuck in my grief. And, uh, and I remember, um, I think I read, wrote, wrote about this in, in that chapter, but, um, I was not, uh, I was never religious. I was never someone that believed in any, like in a higher power. I wasn't spiritual at all. Um, and I remember going on a run probably a year after he died and, um, he was a singer and I, I so I had some of the songs that he used to sing, like in my iPod mm-hmm. and good old days of iPods. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was going for a run. Um, and one of the songs that he used to sing popped on randomly. And as soon as it did, I saw an Eagle start to fly like right next to me. And I just started, I just started bawling because I, I just, I was like, that's, that's Lyle, right? Mm. Like I just, for some reason, I just was like, that's him. He's, he's flying with me. The bird flew with me for the whole like the entirety of that song and then just like disappeared. And I just had this moment of like, okay, like he would not want me to stay in my grief for the rest of my life. He would not want me to beat myself up over this. He would want me to like live as, as much as I possibly could. And, um, and that it really shifted something for me because, um, I was also really suicidal at the time and had been for like probably a year. And, uh, and in that moment I thought, all right, well, I don't really want to live, but I really wish that he could live. Mm-hmm. And since he can't, I'll live for him. And I kind of, that, that, like that motto, like allowed me to just get up every day and, and actually try and enjoy my life. Just, I would just think about like, what would he, what would he do on a day like today? Like what would bring him some joy today? So he was a very joyful person, really social, very, very loving. And, um, and that allowed me to kind of like uh, feel like, okay, I can, I can accept that he's gone and let go. Um, and I can also move forward and live my life. And I think that like having, having that, um, that small shift, I think has, has helped me um, just in like acknowledging that like a big part of the grief process is um, that we hold on. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I experienced that in my divorce, like I held on so tightly after we got divorced, even though there was no possibility of us getting back together, I held on to this idea that maybe we would. And that was a way for me to not fully let go. And I remember learning something in, when I went to eating disorder treatment, that was like, uh, acceptance does not mean, um, approval. Mm. We can accept something and not like it both can be true. And I think that that whole concept of like, I can accept, I can accept that he's gone. And that doesn't mean that I like it. Right. And so, but that, that allowance for like, I can let go and still love him and honor him. And I get to let go, like both are true at the same time. And I think that, um, having that, that recognition has allowed me in other, in other times of my life, whether it's grief or something else, um, because we can grieve, I mean, we can grieve so many things. We can grieve the loss of an identity. Of we can grieve, you know, it's not just death. Like, and there've been many times in my life where I've grieved parts of self. I've grieved my eating disorder. I've grieved a future I thought I would have. And that that t- tiny little sort of moment of like allowing myself to accept and let go while still 
loving or, you know, I just, I think that that was a big, um, realization for me. Um, and not something that I like remembered very well. Like I still like repeated the same pattern yeah. over and over again, you know, like, um, but that, I think that, that moment was the first time I kind of experienced that, that reconciliation. Yeah. Just, just because we've learned the lessons doesn't mean that we always follow their, their teachings. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, like so uncanny, um, I had a, and I know that a lot of people who've lost um, loved ones have had, uh, you know, find find meaning in signs, and um, a lot of those signs often oftentimes are birds. Uh, I had a very similar one uh, with Lee, and birds have been a, a big part of um, me feeling close to her in the aftermath. But it was even just recently that uh, I was up in Tofino, your your neck of the woods, and uh, I was driving. I don't remember what the name of the road was, but all of a sudden it went through um, McMillan Grove and her last name was McMillan. And the second that we went, like I saw the sign for McMillan Grove, which is this beautiful grove of like these huge old growth. I believe they're cedars and um, just stunning. Um, our song came on the radio. So it was like one, two. And then at that time, like a giant hawk flew down and flew over the road and just stayed in front of the car for pretty much the entire duration of the song. Not like crossed the road, not like, you know, came down and landed on the side of the road, but like was flying in front of the car. And then, you know, song ended and it just disappeared. And I was wow. like, wow, well, if I was looking for a sign, <laughs> that was it. Thank you for being wow. completely explicit. Um, and, you know, that had come after I'd been going through kind of a period of doubt, very similar, um, you know, wondering as I do, if there was anything else I could have done, if, you know, I was holding her memory in the right way, why I wasn't able to like, you know, necessarily like call back so many of the good times that we had, why so many of the, the memories that were really present for me were, were these negative ones associated with, you know, her kind of descent um, into her mental illness and the trauma of the aftermath. And, and I was in that pattern. And when all that happened, it was like, okay, you're here. You want me to just remind you that, you know, it's more than that and that you know i'm allowed to to go live and and to enjoy this world because you can't anymore and you couldn't so yeah it was very special um how how is telling your story in such a personal way and and putting it out there how has that kind of helped you process move through you know connect i i think it's helped me in ways that i i still can't quite believe um i i mean i i was i was never somebody who shared very openly about my my feelings or my thoughts like i was always the person in a room that was quiet and listening like mm -hmm. holding space for everyone else honoring people's vulnerability and like feeling connected to other people's stories but i was i just didn't i never shared my internal world with people mm -hmm. Josh probably the first person who like not he got through the walls and like like I felt safe enough to really share some things with him um and uh the first time I like ever really openly talked about my mental health was after I went through eating disorder treatment and um and I was I'd been in group therapy and it was the first time I had heard other people describe their experiences with their eating disorder and I, I was like, oh, this isn't a me thing. This is 
common. Mm -hmm. Like other people experience the same shit, like, oh, whoa, okay. And I felt, I just felt really relieved knowing I wasn't the only one. And, and I felt really inspired too. I was like, okay, well, if they have the courage to, to speak about what's going on and it's helping me so much, like I can do the same. And, um, and I remember, so I remember speaking at like a, so the, the National Eating Disorders Awareness Association does like these walks in cities to raise funds and raise awareness. And um, I did a, a speech, they always do a speech of someone who's like in recovery. I did a speech and like, it was a very like surface level, like, kind of cliche, but I, I shared a little bit of my story and it was the first time I'd ever really publicly done anything. And I it's kind remember of a like big stage I, for first, first share. <laughs> I mean, it was like 20 people in Spokane and Washington. It okay. wasn't like that, <laughs> right. but still, I mean, it felt, yeah, I felt very exposed. I was super nervous. And, and then I started sharing a little bit more openly, um, on my social media and kind of talking about mental health and eating disorders. And like, again, I was still, I was, I was sharing my experiences, but it was very, um, it was very safe. And, and I think like at that point I kind of had this, I had this, this was like 2016, I think. And I had this sort of inclination that I wanted to write a book about my eating disorder because I remembered when I was in high school, um, looking for books and looking for, cause there wasn't social media. There was nothing on the internet, like on the internet really. So I was looking for books about people who had eating disorders because I was, I just was like, is this, is this really just a me thing or do other people experience it? And there was like, there was one memoir about a girl who'd gone through an eating disorder and that was it. And so I just felt like after I went through treatment and started kind of sharing a little bit more about my experiences, um, I thought, I think I want to write a book about my experience and maybe help someone feel less alone and just create more stories so that there are more examples. Cause it's also not a one size fits all experience. Like everyone has a really different course, yeah. experience with it, you know? And, um, and, uh, so when I did actually in that, you know, it took me probably, it took me four years to actually get the courage to start writing because I was really, really scared, um, of my whole life being, that exposed. And once I, I knew that once I wrote it and like put it out there for the world, I couldn't take it back. Yeah. And so I think overcoming the fear of what people might think, the fear of what my parents would think, um, the fear of, you know, being rejected or like in terms of like people thinking my book sucked or that I wasn't a good writer or that my, were you a writer story, before? Was that something that you, I, yeah, I wrote a lot. I mean, I, I had a blog for probably like 10 years just for myself and my, it was not, anything that I was trying to do anything with. It was just a way for me to process my thoughts. Um, it, and it became a really helpful way for me to kind of remove what was happening in my head, put it on paper, look at it and go, Oh, I see what's happening here. I see where this is coming from. And it was almost like a form. It was very therapeutic. It was a form of like self-inquiry mm -hmm. um, for me to kind of make sense of what was happening in, in my head and in my world. And so I learned a lot about myself just from writing um, and it helped me a lot too. Um, and so I, you know, when I wrote my book and just started sharing more on social media, I, um, I think the biggest, the, the most healing thing was a, how many people said, wow, I've had literally those exact same thoughts or wow, I've had that exact same experience or, you know, thank you for sharing this. This makes me feel less alone or, um, uh, you know, just like getting, getting feedback that, um, 
like that I, again, was not the only person experiencing some of the things that I was sharing, because I also like, you know, I, I wrote a lot about things that I hadn't ever processed in therapy or shared with people. And so I also wasn't sure, like, like maybe this is still just a me thing, Mm -hmm, you know, like, mm -hmm. so to continue to get that feedback, um, I think reinforced this, uh, part of myself that I often felt was missing, which is that I am a human. I'm not broken. I'm not fucked up. I'm not eternally diseased or disordered. I'm human. And like, and so like to just to connect with so many people who've shared so many similar experiences, it really lessened the shame and the, um, the belief I had that there was something inherently wrong with me. It, it, it expanded my worldview around what it means to be a person and what it means to be a person in the system that we live in, in this culture and society that we live in, in this time, you know, that we live in, like, and to understand how much more is at play beyond just me, Rachel, and my experiences. Um, I think it opened, it opened up a lot of new perspectives for me to understand, not just myself, but myself in the context of living on this planet. Um, and, um, and I think too, just like, um, going back and like reliving a lot of those things and, and writing about them, um, was actually, was actually really difficult and in some ways re-traumatizing to have to go like relive a lot of these old, like old stories. Um, and I think in doing so, I kind of opened up spaces that maybe I had really kind of closed and not wanted to ever look at. And in doing so, I had to look at them. Like I had never really looked at my sexual trauma until I wrote my book. And by going back through these experiences, I had this realization of like, oh, this is why, this is why I struggle so much in intimacy. Like it, it was like, Mm. I was putting things together that I hadn't put together before, um, which then allowed me to show up with more, um, with more intention in my present therapy, because I could, could say like, Hey, I think that this is something I really want to look at and work through. And I, I didn't ever realize it. And um, maybe more grace for yourself for having been through. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, And I, and I think too, like when you get to write your own story, like you get to write your own story. And so I also got to rewrite some, some parts of my life that were really painful. I got, I had the opportunity to rewrite them in a way where I could feel powered and, um, and really honor like the the things that have happened in my life, uh, have brought me to this moment that I'm in and, um, not in like a silver linings kind of a way, but like, uh, I don't think I would want my life to have gone in any differently. Um, as hard as some things were like, uh, it's allowed me to be who I am. So I don't know. It was, it's been healing in a multifaceted way for sure. I was listening to, um, Anderson Cooper's podcast, all there is, and he had Stephen Colbert on and, he lost his dad and his brothers in a plane crash when he was really young. He was like 10, but he had a line that really kind of hit me, which was, um, I might butcher this. My memory is not always perfect, but um, basically that to, he had to love all parts of his grief and like how the thing that could be the most, um, you know, awful, disruptive, whatever, if it makes you who you are, you, 
and you love who you are and you love the place where you are. You have to love all the things about it. And it doesn't mean you have to accept them, right? Like your point earlier. Um, but, you know, neither of us, you nor I, would be sitting here in the place we are with, without having been on that journey and, and had all those things happen. So in a way, it's like, you know, would you change them? I'm sure I'll speak for myself. Yes, of course. Like I would, I would want uh, Lee to still be alive and, you know, we would try to smooth out all the bumps in the road, but you know, those bumps kind of make us who we are. And, um, so, so finding that acceptance too, um, I haven't written my story. It's something that I, I'm considering, but, um, yeah, I can imagine how going back through and, and examining all of it was, was probably very difficult. And also, like you said, gave you a chance to, to rewrite the narrative a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely like resonate with that you know, loving all parts of self. And I, I went on a hike with a buddy of mine and we were talking about, uh, we were talking about suicide and depression because we've both experienced suicidal depression before. And he was saying that something that it had really helped him was learning to love that part of himself, like learning to love the part of himself that wanted to die. And I was like, I, I was kind of asking about it. Cause I said, what do you, you know, what do you mean by that? And he said, um, well, if I don't, if I, if I choose to ignore that part of myself, it doesn't go away. It just, it screams louder for, because it needs me. If I choose to hate it, then it shuts down and, but it's still, it's still going it, to, then it, it almost makes it worse. But if I love it, I get to look at it and say, what do you need? What is it that you need? And how can I provide that for you? Mm. And I, I just, I thought that that was such a, like a wonderful, uh, I thought that was such a wonderful integration of like, I don't know. I just realized how many parts of myself, uh, I really, like, I really ignore, shut down or, or feel ashamed of or hide away. And in doing so, like I become less of, I become less of who I am. And, uh, and I took that with me, like specifically with like my, you know, the part of me that has been suicidal in the past, because it allowed me to turn towards that part of me and say, what do you need? And and begin that dialogue. And um, I don't know. So I just, I really, I found that to be really powerful and really helpful too. Yeah. And, and like similarly addresses that duality that you're talking about. You can, you can acknowledge it without necessarily accepting or I guess accept it without agreeing with it. Um, yeah. 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 Um, you, you talk really and have, have walked the walk about really finding ways to, to ask for help, um, you know, whether that's going through eating disorder uh, treatment or, you know, getting into therapy. Um, how has, have you always been able to ask for help? I guess is one question. And then two, how, <laughs> how do you bring that into your life where it's not like, you know, having the shame of feeling like you need to solve everything yourself and the guilt for not being able to figure it out and just come to a place of like being like, oh yeah, yeah, I need help. Let's go do that. Yeah, no, I sucked at asking for help for most of my life. I don't think I have, I think that the first, the first time that I can truthfully say that I uh, started to develop a skill around support seeking was a year ago. Mm. Um, I, uh, I didn't ever ask for help and I also never accepted it. And learning those, the, they're two totally different things, but they're really related. Um, and I think like once I, uh, I think it was 
probably in my in eating disorder treatment, we were learning um, like interpersonal skills um, about like communication and asking for needs um, or setting boundaries. And I remember thinking like, I, I think I, I think I asked my therapist once, like people ask for this kind of stuff. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, really? Like I, it just it blew my mind that other people in the world actually would ask people for help, whether it was like logistic help, like I need help with moving or emotional help, like, Hey, I'm struggling. Can, can we talk on the phone? Um, or, you know, whether it's like reaching out and asking to, for therapeutic support, like whatever, I just was, it blew my mind that people actually did that. It didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that that was an option. <laughs> like, um, so I think like that, that initial shift and re like relearning that that was a possibility was that took years for me to, to create that framework of like, oh yeah, people ask for help. I'm not a burden. Um, it's okay to say yes. If someone offers me support, uh, if I'm having a hard time, it's okay for me to call someone. I don't have to figure it out first and then let them know that I'm okay. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so just like the mindset shift took a couple of years and that was before I could even really practice actually asking or receiving, um, and was it therapy and, and talking to therapists or like what, what helped you make that mindset shift? Cause I think that's a big one for people. Yeah. Um, it was definitely therapy. It was like, I think that was initially where the, where the shift happened because, um, I think learning like from an authority figure who I trusted mm -hmm. that this in fact was like a normal human thing to have needs and to ask for support with them. And that we, you know, we're not, we don't, we don't survive as a species alone. No. It, it's just, we survive as a species because of community and because of connection and collaboration and working together. And everyone has a different set of skills and offerings. And we, that dynamic is what keeps us alive. It's to have needs is a human thing. And to get them met is, is how we, it's like, it's just, it's, it's survival. And, um, and so I think like getting that sort of technical perspective shift of like, Oh, this is not, um, uh, this does not mean something about me personally. It does not make me weak. It does not mean that there's something wrong with me or that I can't do things or that I'm not capable. Cause I had a lot of like limiting beliefs about not being capable, um, about being a burden. And I think like those beliefs married with not actually, just not actually knowing that asking for help was a, was a normal human thing, um, really inhibited me from actually ever seeking support. And so I think working through those limiting beliefs of like being incapable, um, or being a burden, um, and that like asking for help was like a sign of strength mm -hmm. and not a sign of weakness. Um, and, and also reframing some beliefs around like people actually want to help me. Um, right. And so changing those mindset, like those, those beliefs was like a big part. And then just also kind of getting the, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely like a sort of a, a, a geek when it comes to like, I like to know why things are, why someone's telling me to do something mm -hmm. like, um, so I think in therapy, it was really helpful to have like a very clinical, like, let me give you the, the information as to why this works and why this makes sense. Um, kind of allowed me to lean in and believe it and trust it. Um, I think that was like initially where that mindset, sh mindset shift happened, but I don't think that it solidified until I had experiences that reinforced that. So mm. until I had experiences of asking for help and someone helping me in a way that actually, that I actually needed, or when I actually had experiences of someone offering help and then against like every bone in my body that wanted to say no, like saying yes and allowing it 
and, and rewiring like the discomfort around letting someone do something for me and not thinking it was transactional um, and that I could receive without having to give in return. Um, and so having continued experiences to reinforce that new learning, um, I think then really allowed that shift, that mindset shift to not just be an exercise that I kept having to do. It became my actual way of thinking. Um, so how does it feel for you to ask for help these days? Uh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And I, and I still don't do it. I still probably don't do it as much as I, I could. And, um, like I went, so I went back to eating disorder treatment this year, um, cause I relapsed after my divorce and I, and one of the biggest things that became clearer to me while I was in program was I had kind of reverted back into some hyper-independence mm. and, um, and, uh, and so like a big theme for me was returning to support seeking and, and asking for help. And I feel very lucky because the group, the group I was in was so like, Rachel, you can ask for help, like ask us for whatever you need. Like we're offering support. We want you to take it. Like they were really making sure that I knew that they were all, um, invested in my support seeking. And, uh, so that really helped me quickly kind of get back into a place of like, oh yeah, it's safe for me to ask for help community is the fucking best. Like the more I can lean on people, the more energy I have for them to lean on me. And, um, and just having that reciprocity of like, we're all here to help each other out. And like, we're not going to know everything all the time and that's okay. And I think that that also like is such a beautiful marriage with the uncertainty piece, because I think not asking for help was also a way for me to feel like I had everything under control. Mm. And, and by acknowledging that I, there are things that I don't know how to do, or there are things that I'm not the best at, or there are things that I'm still a beginner at. And so I'm learning or, um, you know, like that's acknowledging uncertainty and in do so by acknowledging uncertainty. I also acknowledge that I might need some help. Um, I can't do everything by myself and that's okay. And so I think like those two pieces, like being together has been like a really, uh, has allowed me to live in both of those spaces with much more, ease um and like and because I don't feel shame about not being able to do something I don't feel shame about being a beginner I don't feel shame about not having all the answers that's and huge needing, by the way. and needing some help <laughs> yeah um one of the one of the areas of the book that I really you know brought up a lot for me was in reading about your perspective obviously you're writing the book but about Josh trying to help you when you were going through um, both suicidality and eating disorder. And, you know, um, that, that struck a chord because I was in a position where Lee was battling her mental health and I felt so helpless to be able to, to help her. Um, don't really have a question, but I guess it's like not knowing now what you do know, it's like, how would you, how would you, counsel somebody or advise somebody who who has a partner who's struggling to to help them and, and to be able to show up for them in the best way possible i mean I, I this might not be a very satisfying answer but um you know it's 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 like the greatest uncertainty of all like to have a loved one that's struggling with their mental health um because there there is no real right answer there's not a thing or a path or here's what you do. Here's the steps to help someone through that. There's just, there's just not. And I think that that was something that Josh really struggled with because 
I mean, he, he also was someone that really liked to, to have things in control and for him, it manifested in fixing things. Like he was a, he was a fix it guy, a solutions guy. And to not be able to fix or solve my mental health was, was really crushing for him. Um, and, and I think, you know, so I think like truly like there is not a, a fix or a solution. I think for someone who's, whose partner is struggling with their mental health, like figuring out how for them, for yourself to sit in that uncertainty of, mm. I don't know, I don't, I don't have all the answers or like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to help this person today or tomorrow. Um, all I know is that I'm, I'm going to be here right now with them while they're walking this path. And, and I think that like, you know, when I was feeling suicidal, like all, you know, the only thing that I think I could have, I think one friend actually said this to me one time and I, and I, it was the most relief I'd ever felt. And they said something like, uh, you know, I know this is like a really dark, a really dark part. And I don't know how, I don't know how we get you to the light, but I believe that we'll get there. And I'm just going to sit with you until we do. And that was it. It was like, oh, I don't, it was just a, like, I just felt like, oh, I don't have to change. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be better. I already feel like I'm the worst person in the world. So to know that you are not trying to make me different, that you're not trying to make me better, um, that you're not trying to push away what I'm feeling and that you're just going to sit with me. Like that was the greatest comfort of all. And I think that like, you know, I think, I mean, and I've, I've had friends that are suicidal and I get really wrapped up in my own anxiety of like, how can I help them? What can I do? Even though I've been in that position, I still start to think like, okay, what, what's my training and suicide training? Like, what's the right thing for me to say here? Like, how can I make sure I don't say the wrong thing or make it worse? And like, how can I get them out of that headspace? And it's, and I will find myself doing that and remember, oh, like that's my own fear of what might happen. That's my own fear of what might happen if this person dies and, and could I handle that? And that's me, that's more of my own self-protection than me being willing to sit in the darkest, darkest place that they're already in with them. And I think that that's, uh, that's a whole lot of not knowing. <laughs> yeah. To say like, I'm willing to sit here with you while you're in this place where you don't want to be alive anymore and not try and do anything about it. Like, cause that feels like it can sometimes feel like, oh, am I giving them permission? Am I allowing? Am I, am I saying it's okay? And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think something that I had to also learn was like, cause I also worked with clients who were suicidal when I was an intern. Um, cause I studied, I studied psycho psychology in grad school. Um, I had to learn, which was really hard for me to learn, but, um, that at the end of the day, if someone chooses to take their life, it's their choice. And I can't, I can't, choose what people do with their life. I just can't. Um, and it's really, really terrifying to let go of wanting to keep somebody alive. Um, because then it feels like we've somehow played a part. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's, it's really, it's not easy. It's, um, and I wouldn't wish, I wouldn't wish that for anyone. It's, it's really, really, really difficult. Yeah, full stop. But um, I, I think the the comfort of, you know, I can, I've certainly had depressive episodes, but I've never been clinically depressed. And um, that was so hard to wrap my mind around just 
needing to accept that that's where she was and not because I'm a fix it guy also like I want to have a solution and I want to be like okay here's the plan we're going to do x y and z it's going to take you here it's going to take this long we're going to it's like that's obviously just not helpful to somebody who's already feeling so overwhelmed and so you know kind of like hopelessly lost within their own ability to handle what's already on their plate um but I think in the in the aftermath like I, I got as close to understanding what she potentially would have been feeling just through the grief and the loss of losing her and how deep that took me. So ironically, it was like, oh, fuck, like, now I kind of get it. Um, and I think what what you said about like just being able to sit with somebody also came to me through something that somebody told me, which was... Um, have you, do you know about the, the theory of like the two arrows? I think it's a Buddhist... Uh, theory uh-uh. or i know it's reflected in, in several religions but you know the the first arrow is the emotion that we feel and we all have that arrow in us so if we're feeling you know anger joy guilt shame whatever and the second arrow is the one that really does the damage and that's how we feel about the way we're feeling so if we're you know angry and we're feeling guilty about being angry or if we're you know um feeling shame but um we're mad that we're we're feeling that shame um that's the the sort of the second arrow that gets us so just being able to sit with and process and just be like okay well this is how i'm feeling and it sucks and instead of trying to like make myself feel better and cheer myself up i'm just going to sit with it and like you know wait for it to pass that that was one of the most helpful things and i stopped i was able to let go of a lot of the the shame and the guilt around how I was feeling and why I wasn't bouncing back quicker and why I wasn't doing more and, you know, why I wasn't, you know, living up to these ideals that I had of myself and how I would process a situation like that. Um, so yeah, just wanted to share that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about rituals. You have, you have, you bring up a lot of things, you know, everything from your kind of your healing process in Bali to the idea of just being able to like sit quietly with yourself. Um, do you have any rituals that you, you kind of practice on a day to day that you found useful? You know, it's so funny. I, I used to be really, uh, diligent about my morning routine. So I used to have this like very, it wasn't strict, but like every morning, I would do morning pages. I would write, like I would just brain dump for three pages. Um, and then I would do more like structured journaling with like affirmations or gratitude. Um, and, and then like pull a tarot card or something to kind of like connect myself to some like play and faith. Um, and like, that was my way of kind of grounding, filling my cup, starting my day with like letting go of whatever was kind of already like feeling stuck and icky. Um, and finding kind of like an intention for the day. Um, and that kind of like kept me, that kept me pretty stable for, I want to say like five years, I, I would do that. And I, I noticed that if I wasn't regularly doing that in the morning, I would kind of get into a funk. But in the last, I would say like six months, I've completely abolished all of my morning routines. Uh, I have absolutely no rituals. Um, the only thing that feels like somewhat ritualistic for me is that I'm, I'm consistent daily with my routine. So whether it's like, okay, in the morning I wake up and I have coffee and take Milo out my puppy. And then we have breakfast and then I go for my walk and gym. And then I work for these three hours and then I go outside again. 
I make dinner, like whatever it is, like there's a fairly consistent pattern. Mm. And I, and I realized that like, for me, like, cause I, I, um, like being grounded is something that I struggle with. And so to feel grounded, like I need to have some level of consistency. And so that's really what my morning practice was giving me. It was giving me this consistent daily thing that I always could rely on, whether I was at home or on a trip, like I can wake up and I can do this hour long thing. And I feel grounded because it's that consistency breeds familiarity, which makes me feel safe. And then, you know, that, you know, that creates a foundation for me for the rest of the day to feel rooted. Um, and I think also what's interesting is like, I, I've done a lot of work to, um, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about like loving all parts of self. Like I've done a lot of work in the last year or so around really accepting and loving like all the different parts of Rachel. Um, and in doing so, I naturally now notice I just feel more grounded at baseline Hmm. because, because I'm not running from my own self all the time. I'm not like mentally trying to escape certain thoughts or, or desires or feelings or my physical body. Like I feel daily more grounded because all the parts of me feel safe to exist in my realm. Um, and so I think like, it's been interesting. It's interesting. You asked me that because I, I also like, I kind of like had this thought last week of like, oh, I feel, I feel really well. And I'm not really sure what I'm doing to make that happen because I'm not like, I'm not doing my morning routine. I'm not, you know, uh, meditating or praying or, um, you know, regularly working through a specific trauma or whatever. And, uh, and so I think like right now, you know, this ask me again in six months, I might have a new ritual, but I'm in this season sort of where I like, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm letting myself live without feeling like there's something I need to heal. And I think I got a little bit attached to this, this notion of always healing. And I realized like that even in its own was kind of like a, like, it's like a capitalist way of looking at recovery. (laughs) Like I have to always be healing so that I'm doing better. I have to always be better than I was the day before. And I've kind of gotten to this place of like, well, what if I'm not, what if, what if I'm just the same or what if I'm worse? Like, can that be okay? And kind of experimenting with like, how does it feel to like, not be the best at something? How does it feel to like, be mediocre? How does it feel to fuck up? How does it feel like, and knowing that I'm going to survive and I can always change my mind tomorrow. Like if tomorrow I wake up and I'm like, you know what? No, like this isn't working. This is not, I'm not feeling well. Um, or I'm having anxiety or I'm starting to notice like my mood is really low. Like, right. Maybe we bring back in some ritual and routine. Maybe like it does feel good to improve on this component of my life. That's making it harder for me to, you know, enjoy living. And, um, and so it's just been interesting to be in that season of like, uh, of not trying to fix anything. Yeah. I, so I recently moved back to LA. I uh, lived here for a long time, was up in Santa Barbara and came back. And I, one of the most obvious things to me about being here and being here in 2023 is that healing is just like a way of life now, as opposed to a tool to get you to a place where you can just like live your life and and let go and while i think like the focus and the attention and the openness around sharing about healing and what people are doing to heal and you know the the priority it gets in people's lives is is huge and so much better than just ignoring it and pretending like no one needs to heal i do find that 
it's so relieving to hear you say that, that you're in a place in a season where you're just letting yourself live because I have these doubts too, where I'm like, okay, like I've done a lot of healing over the last couple of years. Like, do I get to a place where I can just like maybe try and see where that's gotten me without having to like be, like you said, better today than I was yesterday and like constantly making progress. Cause the day comes where I don't feel better than I did yesterday. So did I fail in my healing? And like, you know, yeah. that can like all of a sudden put me in a place where I'm like, Oh, well I have to, I have to change my morning routine. It's like, Jordan, chill. <laughs> like days are not, <laughs> days are not all gonna go up like this. You know, it's gonna it's gonna be an ebb and more flow. Um, yeah. I one of the rituals that I I think a lot of people have connected to you on, um, but is is your somatic rituals and the dancing. How did how did that start? And is that something you still do? <laughs> yeah, I definitely still do that. Um, it's so funny to me. I, like. I was not expecting that to be what it had, be, what it's become in terms of people like really resonating and connecting to that. I like, it still cracks me up sometimes that that's what people sometimes know me for, but um, I love it. It's great. I think, uh, yeah. So I, I actually, um, I mean, I've always loved dancing. Like I, I grew up tap dancing and at weddings, I'm like the last person on the dance floor. And like, I just, I love to dance. Uh, I'm not good at it, but it's really fun. <laughs> and, um, and I, I went to an ecstatic dance when I was in Bali. Um, and I had no idea what I was, what I was going to. I'd never heard of ecstatic dance before. I just had a friend say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to ecstatic dance. Um, it's on Sunday at 11 o'clock, like in the morning. And I was like, who goes dancing at 11 in the morning? I was like, this is weird. Like my experience with dancing was like, you're out at night at the club, everyone's drunk. And like grinding on each other like that was my framework of like going out to dance mm -hmm. with other people so i was like i don't i don't know what this is going to be but like it was when it was when josh and i were um in our like initial separation and i had made myself a promise that like um i was just going to try things like i was going to not place any judgment on new experiences i was just going to try things and so i was like all right well i'm open i'm going to try this and see what happens and I showed up and uh, it was like this beautiful outdoor venue, like overlooking the ocean. And there were probably like a hundred people there. Um, and the DJ, I remember the DJ saying, um, all right, we're going to get started soon. Um, there's only three rules. Number one, no cell phones. Number two, uh, uh, no talking or touching. Number three, there's no right way to move. Just move. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? And like, so I was like, you know, trying to just dance with the beat and like dance well and look good. And I noticed like everyone around me was just kind of like, they were like really into like into like in tune with their own bodies. A lot of people had their eyes closed, like just kind of moving through space. Um, people, some people were like on the floor. Some people were just standing still looking at the water. And I was kind of like observing what was going on around me. And I realized like, oh, I'm not here for anyone else. Like mm. I'm here for me. And so I like, I took a moment to like check in with my body and go like, how do you want to move? And then I kind of noticed like where my body wanted to move. And I started to feel like where the music was inside of me. And like for the next hour, I just like, I had not felt that free, like maybe ever in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt so deeply connected to my body, which I also had not really experienced a lot of, like I was chronically disconnected from my own body. And at the very end, I just, I was like laying on the ground at the end, just crying. Um, and I remember there was this girl next to me and she was also on the ground and she was just looking at me and she was also crying. We were just crying and looking at each other. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but this is amazing. Like I've never felt so open. Um, 
And so after that, I like, I kept going to ecstatic dance and then, um, and then I just started like doing it as a way to like hype myself up. So like, it was when, it was when I was like first starting to post some stuff on Instagram about mental health. And so I remember doing like a live on Instagram of like how to do guided journaling, like, and ask yourself certain questions. And I remember like hyping myself up by like putting on a song and like dancing in my room. And I filmed myself doing it and put it on my Instagram and said like, this is how I get ready to go live. And, um, and I kind of just kept doing that here and there of like, I would dance and then put it on Instagram. Like, have you danced today? Or like something like that. Um, and it, and then COVID hit and I was stuck inside and I just, it just became a way for me to like, um, I don't know. It became a way for me to like get myself ready for things that I was nervous for. Um, if I was feeling like really low energy or like, like not connected to my body, I would dance in front of the mirror for five minutes. And then I would kind of like reset, um, when I started talking to my therapist about it, she was like, oh, well, you know, Rachel, that's like a form of somatic healing. And I was like, what does somatic mean? And then she started to teach me about somatics and like using the body as a way to heal the mind and like a bottom up approach to trauma healing, regulating the nervous system. So then I started like geeking out on the nervous system and understanding like the way that shaking is like a biological way for us to move hormones through the body. Um, and there were just, there were so many like kind of small aha moments where I was like, oh, like this is a way for me to reconnect with my physical body after years of disconnecting from sexual trauma or my eating disorder. It's a way for me to like literally shake out stress. So if I'm feeling anxious and I've had kind of have like a sort of a fight flight freeze response to something just by like literally shaking and jumping, I can kind of move that adrenaline through my body and ground myself and like bring my nervous system back to baseline. Um, it was a way for me to like, connect with my chakras when I was really into chakra healing, like, and thinking about like what point of my body feels really tight and, and stuck. And then how can I release that part of me and like using visualization. So it just like, it created all these opportunities for me to, uh, get out of my head, which, um, I really, really struggled to do, um, and just get into my body. Uh, and I just, yeah, I just kept sharing it online and people, and people were like, Oh, I do that too. I do that too. That's so awesome. So I think, it, I think it was also cool because I, I often feel like Therapy can be, I mean, therapy is really inaccessible to a lot of people um, financially. Um, there's also still like a lot of stigma in lots of areas. So some people just, you know, they don't go because of either their family's beliefs or their beliefs. Um, and uh, and it's also like still like a pretty like jargony. Uh, it's hard to like to try yeah. to take con like psychological concepts and make them accessible. And so I think for people to have another avenue to approach feeling better in the moment that's literally within their own power because it's just their body I think this was really empowering for a lot of people um so yeah that's, that's kind of the dancing story there <laughs> I love it um yeah it, it it feels like it's also like a way of reclaiming a little bit of joy too even if like you know, kind of like I remember being told at some point, like, if you just physically smile, like, even if you're not feeling it, like the act of physically smiling can like improve your mood. It's like, I feel like that's kind of a similar, like, just dance it out until you feel better. Absolutely. Yeah. It's some opposite action. Um, and it's, again, you're using your body to inform, you're communicating to your brain. Everything is safe because, you know, it's like, it's true with like your posture too. Like if we are hunched over or curled up, like that communicates to the body, like there's something I'm protecting myself from. And so then the brain thinks like, oh, I'm not safe. Yeah, so by I... physically like opening up, yeah, like opening up the shoulders and having posture that communicates upwards to the brain, like I'm safe. I can stay open. 
and therefore like I have uh, I feel less stressed or less anxious and like so like having those like bottom-up communication skills and tools is so cool <laughs> yeah if we were getting chased by a lion we wouldn't be dancing <laughs> <laughs> no probably not <laughs> Although uh, knowing me, I'd probably try and get the lion to dance with me. I'd be like, let's just dance this out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't want to eat me. You just came for the dance party, right? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> um, where are you finding joy these days? Everywhere. Everywhere. And like, and it's a constant, like, it's a daily, like, how can I turn, turn my mind towards joy? How can I turn my mind towards joy? So like I wake up, I sometimes I wake up and I'm, I'm feeling funky, like, or I don't want to get out of bed. Like I, I don't wake up with a giant smile on my face. Like, um, I definitely still like have noticed that there's mornings I wake up and I'm like, I'm not sure about this today. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so like immediately, like I, you know, I have to find ways to like turn the mind. And this is a skill I learned in in uh, treatment, it's a, a DBT skill of turning the mind. And, um, and so just like small things of like, my dog will like jump up on my head. And it's sometimes really annoying, because I want to keep sleeping, and he's jumping up and he wants to paw at me. I ask myself, how can I how can I turn towards joy? And then I and I look at him and I think like, God, you're the cutest thing I've ever seen. Like you are so fluffy and look how much you love me and you just want to snuggle with me. This is so wonderful this is so wonderful that I get to cuddle with this cute little dog. And every morning you want to just, you want to snuggle up with me. What this is, this is incredible. And so just like small moments like that, where I like, I, I turn towards joy. I'm not good at it all the time. Like sometimes I'm just like, you're fucking annoying me. And I'm not getting out of bed, but, um, but by just trying to do that, like in small ways, like it, it creates a ripple effect in big ways. And, and I've noticed too, like, by, I, I went to this really incredible, um, event a couple months ago in Seattle. Um, this woman hosts these things called connection feast and it's gatherings where you come in and she's kind of like, she's cultivated a, like based on a theme, um, a set of like games and activities for people to, to play with each other in service of deepening connection. So I went to one, the theme was, um, reading people. And so all these games were around like learning better how to read other people's body language, but also kind of getting an idea for ourselves of how people read us. Um, and it was, it was just a really cool experience. And she was talking at one point, she was saying, you know, there's so much emphasis on our physical health. There's so much emphasis on our mental and emotional health, but I think we need more emphasis on our social health. Hmm. And that, that like really struck me because I was like, I, I, there's been so many times in my life where I turned down social events because, um, I think like, oh no, I need to rest because I have a workout tomorrow or no, I've, I'm turning this down because I don't want to drink because that's not going to be good for my mental health or I need to get to bed at a decent hour for my physical health. And not that those things aren't important, but I was sacrificing my social health for the sake of these other components. And I, I think, so I think like also like allowing myself to think of um, my social life as a, as a part of all of these different dynamics that make up a well human being and recognizing that that's a big, a big component. It's just as big as my mental and my physical and my spiritual health. And, and so by finding more joy in social scenarios, um, and, uh, and putting myself in situations where I'm meeting new people, um, or I'm having conversations or I'm asking a friend for help and talking to them on the phone. Um, I'm filling this, this cup that I think I've neglected for a really long time, which then, 
creates more energy for my mental health and my physical health. And, um, and that has also like brought me more joy because I now have more people in my life. Um, and I think recognize, recognizing that like, like people is what life is about, like has really created a lot more joy for me, um, than hyper fixating on my well-being, my healing, my trauma, my past, my future, and focusing more on like having experiences with other humans, um, has, has really cultivated a lot of joy. Yeah. I mean, it turns out community and connection is kind of important. <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I sometimes feel like I prioritize my social health over a lot of other things. And then I realize, like, you know, there are times when I don't know how to work on my mental health, but I do know how to say yes to going and grabbing a coffee with a friend. Right. And like by filling up that cup, like that can overflow into taking care of other things for me as well. And so kind of similar to like how your somatic dance practice is more accessible to people than maybe say sitting in a psychotherapy session, like, you know, filling that communal cup, that connection cup can be like a more accessible way for me. I'll speak for myself of me, like taking care of other areas of my life too, when I'm not always sure like what the thing is I need to do specifically to, to work on those things. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Amazing. What's a, what's a question I wish you, what's a question that you wish I had asked you? Is there anything you want to talk about? No, I don't think so. I love every, I love everything you asked me. Yeah. I'm just Uh, happy to get to to connect with you. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even talk about like the Pan American highway. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's kind of like a big overlap that I don't have with almost anyone in this world, but um, it's also like a whole other podcast and uh, in conversation. Um, But I know that that was, that was a pretty transformative experience for you as it was for me. Um, so maybe we can dive into that another time, but, uh, lots, lots more to go into. Um, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Um, really appreciate your perspective and it's amazing to, to go from hearing kind of the, the story and, and the way you've written it to, to seeing you and, um, and being able to share this and, it makes me real happy and proud to see like how much joy you are finding. It's really amazing. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for being here and, and sharing your wisdom. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. Thanks for listening to another episode of never the same. You can find more episodes as well as some supplemental media over at neverthesame.substack.com and you can even sign up and get notified when new episodes come out. I occasionally post over on the gram under my name, Jordan P. Chu, C-H-I-U. Really appreciate the support. See you guys for the next one. Until then.